Hello, everyone, and welcome to the PaxX podcast, now available on iTunes. This is episode seven of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Hi, Mary. Nice to talk to you. I uh, got a bit of a cold going, so hopefully that won't uh, alter my voice too much. Now, uh, is it true? I understand you're calling from the Runway Dubai Studios. Not just yet. Um, I'm heading uh, to Doha tomorrow and then onward to Dubai. So we'd probably record uh, from Dubai next week. Um, I am going to Aircraft Interiors Middle East, and I really can't wait to be on that show floor and talk to all the vendors. Uh, as you know, Max, uh, the Aircraft Interior space is uh heating up in a major, major way. And it's one of the uh, reasons why we have uh, our guest today um, joining us, because she is an expert in the field of aircraft interiors. So I'm looking forward to chatting to her. But yeah, busy days, Max. Yes, for sure. <laughs> but before we get started, of course, we would like to thank Lumexis for sponsoring this week's podcast. Lumexis is widely known for providing its fiber-to-the-screen, fiber-optics-based in-flight entertainment on Fly Dubai's 737s. It's also deploying the system on Turkish and Transaero wide-body aircraft, and it's working with Boeing for line-fit offerability. Additionally, Lumexis is extremely active in wireless IFE. Its new FTTS second-screen wireless solution allows passengers to use one or more of their own PEDs simultaneously to wirelessly access moving maps food selection, catalog purchase, games, or any of the dozens of other server-based FTTS applications without interrupting the HD movie running on the seatback or in-arm monitors. So thank you, Lumexis. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Marissa Garcia. Marissa spent many years working in the aircraft interiors and safety, uh, with an aircraft interiors and safety manufacturer and was directly involved with the design, development, and certification of major interiors programs. She has made the leap to journalism and now authors the Flight Chick blog, uh, which she is developing into an intelligence source for the industry. And she is also a regular contributor to Runway Girl Network and doing amazing stuff for us here. Marissa, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Mary. Hi, Max. And thank you for having me. Hi, Marissa. It's uh, great to have you on the show. I've been enjoying the Flight Chick blog. It looks like you're off to a great start with that. And we're, we're seeing a lot of fantastic content coming into this space these days. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the top PaxX news stories making the headlines this week. Uh, firstly, we've talked about how Ryanair is trying to improve their passenger experience. Uh, certainly, they have a number of long-suffering passengers. <laughs> But the carrier has also gotten very social. Marissa, I understand you've been keeping an eye on Ryanair's activities. What can you tell us? Well, yes, Ryanair, I have to confess, I'm, I'm one of their little advocates here in the corner. I, I actually am very fond of the company. They were a client of mine uh, for the years that I was um, in manufacturing. And I think they really uh, don't get enough credit for caring about the service that they provide and, and the products they do. But they've, they've had a very abrasive image, haven't they? And uh, now they've realized that it's time to get more social, more in touch with their customers. And they've been uh, setting up a Twitter chat called Ask Ryanair, 
which I just followed on Friday. And uh, I have to say, some of the responses that they got were gruesome. Uh, just, you know, you, what you might expect. People were being quite harsh with them. But they handled it beautifully. Um, they replied to as many concerns as they possibly could. And it seems to, the feed is continuing. You know, people obviously like it. And I think passengers are now using it for more positive and, and useful comments, um, which I'm sure they'll take advantage of. I was really impressed uh, at some of the responses from Ryanair, I got to say, Marissa. And of course, uh, it was great. You were retweeting some of them and, and um, it brought it to my attention. And I thought, well, you know, it, it's wonderful to see them finally doing this. They, they took a long enough time, but they're catching up to speed quickly. But they were actually providing useful information to passengers. Some of these airlines that are on social media, um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of managing, you know, the complaints, etc. But Ryanair was really trying to make an effort to point people in the right direction when they would have questions. And I thought, wow, what a, what a change in tune from our mm. friends in Ireland. <laughs> yes, I think they're turning a new leaf. So I guess it's a five-leaf clover now. Oh, yes. Love it. Max, what do you think? I'm curious to know about their timeliness, the timeliness of their responses, because people in social media have an expectation that when they ask a question or bring an issue up, that people expect kind of immediate response. Is Do you think a Ryanair is kind of, you know, meeting those expectations? I think so. I think that they're really committed to doing it. Um, they have set up uh, the group to do to do it and uh, they've been responding from what I could see immediately you know they're they're really really committed to giving uh, feedback to their customers now I also wonder if if they're going to uh, be less controversial let's say in a flying public's mind is will they lose something there or do you think that they'll pick up that slack with their social media activities you know, not to take too much of a departure, but it goes to your question. I was speaking to um, an, a designer uh, the other day and uh, who's very familiar with airline branding. And he was saying that one of the unique things about Ryanair is they know themselves. They know who they are. They know the way to package themselves. And so in many ways, this abrasiveness, this odd behavior, this, this rash bold statements saying we're going to charge you to use the toilet and things like that. And in many ways, it's part of their identity and their promotion. So your question is very good. Um, if they change that, will they suddenly no longer be Ryanair? You know, can the world uh, deal with a, with a fluzzy, cozy uh, <laughs> Ryanair? I think they can. I think that they can marry the two concepts of being different from other airlines of being uh, really standing out and at the same time being more accessible. I think that's the key. They, they need to be more accessible uh, so that they can calm customer concerns and, and seem more approachable. I think in the past they could have done that better and, and I think they see that. Interesting. Now, of course, we, we have to mention that there's there's method to their, quote, social media madness in that uh, they have some stiff competition in Europe, obviously. And EasyJet um, has taken a more passenger-centered approach, I would argue, in the last few years and spearheaded by uh, Carolyn McCall. Um, have been doing quite well. And Ryanair, of course, recently is saying that they want to uh, win those business travelers and, and attract more business travelers. Um, 
you know, it's a nice segue into our next topic. But of course, um, EasyJet and Ryanair offer very tight seat pitch. Of course, the flights are, are pretty short. But Marissa, do you think that business travelers are okay with these 28, 29, 30 inch seat pitches on these short flights? On short flights, I do believe so. Um, I think uh, at the end of the day, that's why they're both. And, and I have to say EasyJet also does a, a great job of attracting uh, that market. Um, they both are profitable, uh, well-standing airlines because there is a market there for that. People who just need to get to from point A to point B for a meeting and then come back again, they aren't bothered too much about uh, some of the other frills. And there's, you know, again, everything applies to a particular market sector. And as a brand in any industry, you have to know who your target market is and you have to provide for that. I think there are a lot of business travelers um, who need that kind of service. And if not, Southwest Airlines wouldn't have occurred in the first place. They wouldn't have emerged because they develop themselves to cater to a particular business uh, market. Marissa, I noticed that uh, you've been very prolific in your writing recently, which is fantastic, and that your stories are getting uh, a lot of uh, reaction, a lot of good readership on the network. Can you tell us about your recent article on why airlines use airbags in some seats? Yes, I I had a lot of fun uh, digging into that um, because, uh, frankly, it all started with a tweet. That um, of another article that Mary wrote, and I read it, and my safety-minded uh, <laughs> side said, wait, airbags, um, how do we get out of the aircraft? I just saw a lot of complications. And uh, Mary was kind enough to say, go, go find out. And I love research. So I started looking into it. And really, there's, there's a lot of advantage uh, in terms of accommodating um, these nested seats and these uh, fancy business class pods, if you will. Really, there's a lot of risk for head impact and uh, in that design. And the airbags make it possible for passengers to sit there uh, in a comfortable, uh, unique um, seating arrangement without having to worry about impact. It's a very interesting development. But again, there are limitations. Uh, one of the things that we talked about uh, was the, the fact that they are disabled by seat extenders. That's a concern. So I think there's still um, a lot of development to come. I think it's interesting, of course, that, uh, and we, we touched on this briefly last week, but that, you know, these airbags are allowing airlines to add more seats. And, <laughs> and, um, which is kind of one issue. But then over and above that, there is, as you mentioned in your article now, the study of airbags in the bulkhead. So it's one thing to have the the airbag within the seat belt or, or whatnot, but the bulkhead kind of changes, changes the game a little bit also. And I, and I can understand why you would have those kind of red flags about safety because you want to make sure that that airbag doesn't get in the way, right, of the passengers uh, deplaning in the event of emergency. Is that is? Am I getting that right? Yes, that was uh, one of the concerns. Uh, and I did find out that the seat bags that are currently in use, uh, again, the the seat ones, uh, the seat bags uh, in the seat belts, um, they deflate in ten seconds. So conceivably, there's no problem for egress. But there is another concern with the bulkhead ones. And it's when I saw the picture that you had on there, I thought it was too dinky. <laughs> the action. Um, just from if you compare the picture of the airbag that's uh, in the seatbelt, the size of it 
um, mm-hmm. and the volume of protection compared to what was illustrated. And I know that was a graphic concept uh, drawing, but still, right. I asked about it uh, with some contacts uh, that I have in the sector, and, and they also agreed that that had better just be a concept because they just seem too small. That looked very lightweight. So just to update our listeners, what we're talking about, Zodiac uh, Aerospace uh, has been shortlisted for a Crystal Cabin Award. Um, This is the kind of premier aircraft interiors awards of the industry. It's like the Oscars for the uh, interiors industry. And it's a fabulous event, isn't it? Um, And uh, they hold it um, around the same time every year uh, when Aircraft Interiors uh, Expo in Hamburg occurs. And uh, this concept uh, has been shortlisted. And uh, it was very, very interesting. and I'll, and I'll include a picture in this post so people can under, can see what we're talking about. But the actual physical airbag d- does not look anything like those airbags that are in the seat belts. <laughs> it was quite lightweight looking. <laughs> Um, so I, it, it is, I'm, I'm so glad that we're covering this. Max, you know, the, the whole issue of seats, of course, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue, an ongoing concern. And we, I literally just published another story written by Marissa here this morning. Um, you know, as passengers grow in size, is safety a concern? And do, do the regulators need to look at the standards again? Because as we've mentioned, those, uh, those dummies are, are set at a certain standard, and yet passengers are, are, are getting larger. Uh, what do you think, Max? Yeah. There seem to be two issues, right? Safety and comfort. And yeah. they're somewhat interrelated, obviously, through the, the, the seat sizing and positioning and so forth. But they, they seem to be treated kind of differently. I guess the regulators are going to be interested or should be interested in it from a safety standpoint. And as we've said before, you know, people are, are changing in, in size. And the, from a safety standpoint, it, we need to see that uh, dealt with. Marissa, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, what, you know, as a person of height, I thought it was really, really interesting that uh, I fall outside of that, quote, percentile. They, they go with percentiles and, and where people fit on average. Can you explain that a little bit about how they test against percentiles? Well, that's really what I'm trying to find out, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, in, cons- in theory, fifth percentile is fifth percentile of the population, the overall general population, or 95th percentile. These are the two standard concepts. But when you try to find out 5% represents what height and 95% represents which height, there is no consistent response. And that's a little, that's a major concern to me. And that's why I want to understand it better. The same thing applies to width and um, to breadth of the person. So these things need to be looked at a second time. Where are these statistics coming from? How are we developing these uh, uh, crash test dummies? And how can we change the standards that we follow for that? Because dynamic testing is really dependent on a number of factors. Uh, when you look at these tests taking place, people, well, the dummies, they, they go side to side, they go forward, they, they get tossed around because of their particular size. The way they're tossed around is different. And one of the responses I got from a source who, who deals with crash conditions was that um, a larger person might be more secure because they're fixed into the seat better. Mm. But that just sounds to me like someone is not thinking it through. Uh, that's, that's it. I, this is just my common sense jumping in and saying, hmm, okay, I'd like to see that 
that larger test dummy in the crash test and see what happens. I want to see that dynamic. Um, right. So we have to find out uh, where are they coming up with these numbers and, and are they still valid? And I understand the statistics behind this. I understand how that how that works with percentiles and all. But the key part that I don't understand, haven't seen addressed, is what's the what's the baseline? Right, right. That's exactly what I'm saying. It, it, we need to define that baseline because the baseline keeps changing. And in the report that I presented you today, Mary, it, it was clearly stated. Um, you know, these baseline numbers need to be reviewed. And is it the baseline for what culture? Is it a worldwide baseline, a single baseline across the entire globe? Or does the baseline differ from region to region depending on the, you know, the physiology of the, uh, of the population there? How does that work? I have no idea. Well, overall, in concept, it's one standard, one uh, population average globally. And, and mainly it's, it's from the larger aviation markets you know, where the authorities are located. But at the same time, within those, if you look at the particular study that I presented today, they're broken down. So, you know, by European measure standard, by UK measure standard, by US measure standard. And there are some interesting variances there. Not to mention, as you point out, Max, what happens with the rest of the globe? Yes, we are very different from one another. And, and there are different trends in terms of which populations are growing at, at faster rates than others. But the idea is in, in any safety policy is to plan for the worst, to look at the weakest point in any system um, and to accommodate it because we don't want to be reactive. Right. It's, it's too late once people are hurt. I uh, I want to I want to just uh, clue uh, listeners in, and of course we are going to highlight this article as well. Um, but the report is the anthro anthropometric study to update minimum aircraft seating standards. Am I saying that right? I think so. <laughs> anthropometric. <laughs> but one of the things that really stuck out for me is um, in the in the report uh, where they say an additional uh, inch of knee clearance to the back of the seat in front uh, should be afforded to ensure that the knees do not contact the seat in front, i.e. the passenger should not be jammed in, and this improves ease of access and egress. Now, Marissa, as, as someone who's quite tall, that's very concerning to me because I have sat in seats where my knees are quite... Uh, <laughs> right up against the seat in front of me. I don't have that inch clearance. And of course, they're making seats more and more, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're getting quite tight. Um, and there's passengers, obviously, that are a lot taller than me uh, that have their knees are literally jammed into the seat in front of them. And what does this mean for safety? And what does this mean for, you know, uh, you know, accidents, uh, incidents, aborted takeoffs? So what does it mean to people's kneecaps? I mean, that that really was a big red flag for me. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, my, my husband's also very, very tall. I'm lucky. I'm, I'm tiny. So I can just, you know, in terms of height, I can just get it fit into any corner. But he is quite tall and he has the same complaint. You know, it's sometimes just even trying to get out would be a mission. Now, having seen some egress videos, some um, evacuation uh, attempt videos, it's very frightening to me because as it is, Evacuation in an aircraft in crisis is pandemonium. 
Now, there are some cases where things are handled very well, and that's wonderful. But for the most part, it is a critical moment, and people are not doing it in an orderly fashion. You don't need complications like people being jammed in their seats. It, it is a concern. And, I again, if the authorities say that they have not considered it a safety problem. But I'm going to ask again. I, I really am going to keep pushing on this point because I don't necessarily agree. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for thank you for chasing this story for us. I mean, it's it, as as the best stories always do. They unravel like a sweater, and that's what we're seeing on the network. And and, and I have to say that uh, you know what Max said is absolutely true. I mean, I I'm on the back end of this site and seeing the traffic going to these stories. People are very very interested in the safety aspect of aircraft interiors. So thank you for that, Marissa. All right, let's move on to our last topic, cybersecurity on board aircraft. This is a favorite of mine, and I'm going to have to uh, resist uh, ranting about it pretty strongly. But uh, it's it's something that keeps coming up. It's been growing in concern. And I, I find over and over this is an area that's neglected by systems providers. So recently, IATA said cybersecurity should be, quote, at the top of every airline manufacturer and system provider's agenda. An example of that might be the electronic flight bags used by pilots, the EFBs, uh, and some others as well. Mary, you've been tracking this story. What do you think is going on here? Oh, it's profound, I have to say, and, uh, and props to Air Insight uh, and Addison Schoenland, uh, who's kind of uh, broken open the, the uh, reality with respect to cybersecurity and tablet-based electronic flight bags. Um, they, Air Insight conducted a study of uh, a survey of airlines and found that 57% of respondents are operating without a cybersecurity plan for their electronic flight bags. To me, that's quite jarring. Uh, this leaves them wide open to potential cyber attacks. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, just wrapping my head around what that means. <laughs> um, it is, it is quite jarring. And then the the report went on to break out uh, kind of some more specifics. But what I found really interesting in the report is this foreword written by uh, IATA's director of flight operations, and uh, and he said, and 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 I'm just going to quote it because I I think it's pretty profound. Customer-facing web portals, such as online booking systems, present a persistent target of attack, but disruption to these systems results in a relatively small operational impact. Conversely, while those systems which directly support airline and flight operations are less exposed to cyber risk, they are nonetheless susceptible and their disruption is likely to cause a far greater operational impact. And of course, uh, you know, it goes without saying that this is something that needs to be addressed. Now, Max, you say that you, you know, this is something that has upset you now because it's, it's been years and it's still going on. Um, you know, do you think that there's been any progress whatsoever in light of this latest report? I see very little progress. And I think we need to take a lesson from the defense industry. I mean, yes. there, a robust security system is going to prohibit mixing personal and official or business use of computer systems. You would never right. see a situation where a pilot's got a, a tablet, let's say, with his electronic flight bag and is doing a company work as well as his own personal. But good security systems, they also uh, limit business use to hardware and software that's provided by and controlled by the company's IT department. Uh, you don't have people running around with devices that can uh, uh, contain software loaded from who knows where. Uh, it's just too many susceptible entry points. The defense industry knows how to do this really well. But when you look at the commercial side of this business, 
it, all that knowledge and expertise seems to have disappeared. Absolutely. Marissa, have you been tracking this at all uh, with respect? To, and of course, it's not just EFBs. We've got to think about all the tablets now that crew have and maintenance operations. I mean, everybody's getting getting those tablets. Uh, some pilots, of course, are carrying their own tablets and they're not, quote, airline approved and they're downloading the software uh, for mapping, etc. Um, onto their own onto their own devices. Uh, Marissa, what do you think about what's going on? Well, I have to tell you, um, of all of the, the excellent reports that you put up there, Mary, this was the scariest to me. Because cybersecurity is a major global issue. And as, as Max points out, the Defense Department has a protocol. Now, aviation traditionally has ga- gained a lot from its military ties, a lot of good practices, a lot of um, support in terms of it ensuring safety and security. Why we don't do that in this application befuddles me. It just seems so logical that we should follow the best example and and not take any risk. This is not this is not a minor thing. Some some quite serious harm could come from it. And part of it, I think, is awareness. I mean, as these new technologies come into the marketplace, it's just so tempting to embrace them into your business or into your uh, professional life that uh, you just want to get started and, and do it and get the value from it. And it it's kind of difficult for, for most people to step back and say, okay, so what do I have to do or what do we need to have in place to ensure that this is secure? People just don't do that. But that kind of thinking, I think, needs to be ingrained in the part of the manufacturers and the systems providers so that, you know, when this when these applications, when these when this hardware is developed for aviation uses, that that's sort of embodied in it, part of it from the start. Yeah, and sorry, go ahead, Marissa, go ahead. No, I was just going to point out that I follow some chatter as well. um, And I recently saw somebody comment, well, are you going to ask uh, Apple to submit to the FAA for to have the FAA approve iPads? And obviously, that's not the conversation. It's just a matter of ensuring that the devices are not vulnerable. Yeah. Well, this is obviously an issue that we're tracking uh, closely, but in tandem with this, we're looking at the use by pilots of in-flight Wi-Fi in the cockpit. Um, now, obviously, airlines uh, and the Airline Pilots Association don't like to talk about this on record. And in fact, I reached out to ALPA uh, specifically on this issue, and they kind of referenced that it was a non-issue. But that's not the case, because I've spoken to a number of pilots that are now accessing the in-flight Wi-Fi on their own PEDs in the cockpit. And um, I, I think it was, I'm, I'm trying to think how many years ago, and Max, maybe you remember where the Northwest Airlines pilots were using uh, their laptops and the, the go-go Wi-Fi, right. and they overshot overflew. by an hour, overflew by, what, an hour and, and, and a half? So. Yeah, they went pretty far past their... Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. And so, I mean, so so from a distraction standpoint, obviously, that's an issue, but also it, it should be also a bit of a red flag that these pilots are accessing the cabin connectivity, uh, you know, in the cockpit. And then beyond that, we go to kind of the next layer of safety and security. And that is where some of the airlines, and we've highlighted this on the network, where some of the airlines are now 
thinking to themselves, we need to have separate connectivity, completely separate connectivity systems for crew and cabin that we shouldn't be even sharing the same pipe. Yeah. Because some airlines take that pipe and they split it, right? There's a couple different channels. So, so just to give you an example, the Inmarsat Swift broadband service, which is, which is on a, a, quite a lot of aircraft, some airlines take one channel of that and get that into the, you know, uh, give that to the cabin. And then they take maybe one or two channels and, and give it to the cockpit for, for phone or data. So, so there's now this idea of should we have completely separate hardware? Now, Boeing has said that they don't think that that's entirely necessary, that the, they can put the security protocol in place uh, to, to ensure complete separation. Others disagree. And this is, a, this is a topic that actually has also had a lot of debate in, in the past as well. Do we need completely separate systems? Marissa, what do you think? Well, I think in terms of this, the soft systems, yes, absolutely. I, I wouldn't want to see those two be split just just to it's there's so many things that worry me about that now in terms of the hardware possibly i I don't know enough about the subject to really judge whether uh, a separation of hardware is necessary in order to accomplish the same thing but but in terms of access yes absolutely two different systems yeah well it's uh what what, max do you uh do you think that Pilots should be able to use their own personal PEDs in flight, access the the GoGo or the or the uh, you know whatever the system is um, uh, in the cockpit, or should they be focused on flying? You know, from a pi- from a piloting standpoint, is is there should we be concerned about the distraction element? Well, I guess I'm more concerned about the 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 crossover uh, between the flight systems. And the the non-flight systems. Yeah, okay. if a if a pilot wants to check and see what the stock is of the airline, you know that's that <laughs> doesn't worry me too much. I mean, obviously, we don't want to see major distractions um, in the cockpit, but kind of casual use, I don't particularly have an issue with personally. But when it comes to interacting with the the flight systems, then I think there does need to be a a real firewall of some sort, either separate hardware. Or if it's sharing the internet connection, then you know using a, a VPN, a virtual private network, or something of that sort to to keep them separate. I think that would be okay. But it, it definitely is something that needs to be explicitly looked at and the safeguards put in place so that even unintended crossovers between the the systems and networks uh, are, are impossible. Hmm. And going back to your point, Max, about the Defense Department standards, this is really very simple for the FAA to regulate. You know, if they just uh, follow established good standards and say this must be adhered to in this manner, it's really simple to enforce uh, regulation. Um, They don't have to invent the wheel. Agreed, yes. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close here. I want to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at RunwayGirl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. And that's either your own personal passenger experience or if you see news that's related uh, to the uh, passenger experience and the industries that are all rapidly building up around it, uh, please share in the conversation. We're really trying to keep track of what's going on in this in this new world. I'd like to uh, reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, Lumexis, and I'd like to thank Marissa Garcia for being our guest. Marissa, where can listeners find you at? 
Well, um, at flightsheet.com or at designerjet. And on Twitter. And, and of course, uh, you're also active in the PaxX hashtag space. So they, they, they'll be able to see a lot of your tweets there as well. Yes, definitely. Oh, and I'm also, I should mention, uh, on uh, Rebel Mouse. I have this lovely little Rebel Mouse feed. Oh, yeah. Now, what is What exactly is the, the Rebel Mouse? Because you're doing a lot of great curated content where it's great. Every day I go into my inbox, Marissa, and I get this message, uh, you know, with all kind of the top stories. What, what, what is that about? Well, what I love about Rebel Mouse is that it's more than curated content. You can add to that content and put in commentary. So it allows a writer to quickly uh, add content, new content based on hot information. I'm very happy with the format. And again, it's it's flight chic at Rebel Mouse. <laughs> hmm. Sounds right. great. Thank you have you. to check that out. All right. Well, we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. Join us again next week as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. 